Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's topic, Horseman's Law of Project Management, Part 3. Hi everyone, this is Mike and welcome back to Manager Tools. Today we pick up with part three of our series on project management, otherwise known as Horseman's Law of Project Management. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, you may want to do so by going to the website www.managertools.com or checking us out in iTunes. For those of you who have listened to parts one and two, here we go with part three. Now with that background, which, although long, was important, I think folks need to understand. Don't you think we we deserve to have an over and under on the number of emails we get saying, I can't believe you guys had so much background? No, frankly, it's been been a tough month for me, and I don't even want to think. Yeah. I don't want to think about getting more (laughs) nasty emails. I'm sorry. So um, the great part, folks, if you haven't hit the send button yet, then just just hold off, because now we're getting to the the meat of the of the whole thing with that background. Now we're going to start talking about really the, the nuts and bolts of horseman's laws of project management, who does what by when. Yep. Totally a simplification, right? It is a simplification. It is a simplification. But, but we, but, it's a powerful but we think one. there's enough insight here that we, we won't end up wearing the tag of oversimplification. So let's talk about who, since that's the first word in the law, we might as well just start there. Uh, and it, and it goes without saying, I think that the most important part of projects is who is on it. I s- imagine that we, we may differ from many project managers out there, particularly technical managers, whose first thought is not about people. Right. And we're not saying that some managers aren't clever enough to lust after one or two particularly sharp people. Not that I've ever done that <laughs> being on their project. Every manager does that in some fashion. Yeah. But very few managers spend time building their team. The act of actually putting the team together right. before spending time figuring out the tasks that have to be done. It's usually the other way around, right? We right. figure out oh, yeah. all the tasks. We have 200 tasks in the project. And then we start going, okay, well, who can do that? Well, who can do that? Who can do that? Versus starting off thinking about how do I get the best people on this project? Like, tasks are important. There's no question about it. Pro- right. Tasks are important. We've already talked about that. We think that they're one of the top three things, obviously. Obviously. But the big mistake is making them number one rather than a solid number two. Number one, it's got to be about the people. It's the people yeah. who do the work. Yeah. Tasks don't do themselves, right? <laughs> <laughs> Related And relatedly, average people will not live up to great systems, and great people will always overcome average systems. Horseman's 11th law, exactly, yeah. So great project teams are made up of people who are good at what they do. They communicate effectively with each other, and they're clear about the mission. Smarter tasks or more budget or different deadlines won't make a flipping difference. Yeah. People will. People will. Every exactly. time. People always make the difference. And I, I have a funny story about that. When you and I were working together years ago, when you were a client, I remember some, we were talking about projects and somebody asked one, one of your directors or something working for you said, who's on that project? And another director listed the people on the project and like two or three sort of whistled said, man, that must be an important project. 
they mistakenly believed that the people who were on the project was an indication of the importance of the project rather than on the project manager saying, I'm going to get the best people for my project. When in fact, it wasn't the most important project. It was just a project manager who had dotted her eyes and crossed her T's and figured out, man, it's about people. I'm going to get the right people on my project. People are not necessarily an indication of the importance of the project. When you have good project managers, it's good project managers figuring out who they want. Yeah, it's it's amazing. As I think back, the managers who consistently got things done on time and on budget were the ones that were the biggest pain in my rear in terms of fighting for the best people. Yeah. I got to have Joe. Before they even knew what they were doing exactly. Exactly. They'd be in my office fighting for, you know, fighting for, quote unquote, more budget, i.e. I need somebody who's being paid, you know, X dollars versus Y dollars. Right. They knew that if they want to get the project done, they had to have great people. It didn't matter what the tasks were. They had to have great people. And they fought for it. Yeah. And this is where this carries over into non-project management, into just regular project management, of course, or, or just regular management, which of course is what project management is. It's just management, as we'll talk about later, is that those managers who learn that lesson then apply that to the folks who directly report to them, whether they're on a project or not. And they end up with better results because they have better people there too. So, yeah. And okay, look, uh, the second thing, and this is so important. You talked about people or who do the work and people are also who, who mess the work up. Sometimes the work doesn't mess itself up automatically. I've seen projects where that seems to be true, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People want to blame the tasks sitting there on the desk. I think tasks are a bit like those rollover minutes in the AT&T commercial. I think it's AT&T. Maybe, maybe it's Verizon. I don't know. They're just tasks sitting there um, on the desk, but the tasks are the problem. Well, I don't want those tasks. I, I, w- I don't want those minutes. I want these other cooler minutes over here. It's never about the task. It's always about the people. People are so important that people are the reason that estimates are wrong. We rarely see project managers adjusting their estimates based on who will be doing specific tasks. Why is that? If we're going to plan out the 243rd task in the project, which won't happen for four months, how can we even suggest that our estimate has any accuracy at all when the single biggest determinant of whether or not any of the first 242 tasks being done on time is the people working on them? It reminds me of the joke, I wouldn't have any management problems if it weren't for the people around here, (laughs) right? right? Come on. Look, if we're going to make estimates, they're going to be wrong. It's that simple. But if we make estimates without considering the 900-pound gorilla in the room, which is to say the people, they're going to be wrong in a silly way. Staring at a Gantt chart and thinking that the rigid bars and tight end lines are an accurate representation of the project, as opposed to a picture of the project team, by the way, I know people are going to kill me for this, but it totally reminds me of my favorite leadership quote. And I'll, I'll repeat it again because there are many people who have joined us since, since I blogged about this. Gosh, it's been a couple of years ago. It is taken from John Brown's Body, which is a free verse poem that won the Pulitzer Prize about the U.S. Civil War. It was written by Stephen Vincent Benet, and it goes like this. If you take a flat map, and by the way, when I read this the first time, I actually thought, oh my gosh, that's a representation of projects, project management. It goes like this. If you take a flat map and move wooden blocks upon it strategically, the thing looks well, the blocks behave as they should. 
The science of war is moving live men like blocks and getting the blocks into place at a fixed moment. But it takes time to mold your men into blocks. And flat maps turn into country where creeks and gullies hamper your wooden squares. They stick in the brush. They are tired and rest. They straggle after ripe blackberries. And you cannot lift them up in your hand and move them. It is all so clear in the maps, so clear in the mind. But the orders are slow. The men in the blocks are slow to move. When they start, they take too long on the way. The general loses his stars, and the block men die in unstrategic defiance of martial law because still used to just being men and not block parts. People and the things that they do matter more than anything else on your project. Yeah, I almost choke up every time I, I yeah. hear those lines. It is so true. So having said that, then... How do we choose the right people? What, what are the criteria we use to get the right people on the project? I'll tell you the first one, and this is one that people miss. Choose people who have success on previous projects, not who are technically skilled, not who know more than anybody else. Skill and knowledge are not as important as project success. And, and frankly, we, we don't see this very often. Of course, when we see it, we love it, and we want to share it as broadly as possible, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this cast. Basically, you, you, could, you could make a case that the people in your organization have project batting averages. Everyone who works on projects over time develops a history of the successful projects they've worked on and the unsuccessful ones. If you want to know who to get on your projects, figure out who has the highest average by dividing the number of successes on projects by the total number of projects they've worked on. And look, you, you can even go further than that. There, there's even more interesting work to be done here, and we'll talk about it more in a future cast, based on the number of tasks that someone completes on time. We've actually done it. I've actually said, look, let's go over and let, let's take a look at the, pro you got all this project management software. You've got names, you've got resource tracking showing who was responsible for project, for task X and task Y and task Z. After being responsible for about 100 tasks on various projects, all the finger pointing and blame laying becomes averaged out. There's a sense of randomized background noise when you get a large number. And you find out who does their work on time and who doesn't on average. And frankly, even if you don't have data on it, we suspect most of you have a pretty darn good gut feel about who tends to get their work done on time and who tends to whine and so on. There are project managers in every organization I've been part of or every organization that we've done work with. There are project managers that everybody knows. Hey, Sally, she just gets them done. She, she always gets, gets her project done. Yeah. And, and you go talk to Sally and she doesn't seem particularly brilliant. There are many project managers in the organization who, who appear to, on paper at least, look like they'd be better project managers. But Sally just gets it done. She's got a great batting average. And so if you got an important project, guess who gets it? Sally. Yeah. And she's getting the harder projects, yet she's still being successful. So, yeah, pick those people. Yeah, pick those people. <laughs> and, and, and here's a hidden gem for, I think, many folks listening to this cast. Choose those who work well with others. This is not an individual sport. This is a team sport. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned this before, all the work skills, all the technical skills, all the install-based knowledge or user interface design experience or supply model building work 
cannot overcome the dangers of having on your team someone who doesn't have the skills and willingness to work well with others. I've said this many, many times before. I'll fire people for two reasons. Failure to accomplish their objectives and behavior that tears down the team. There are people who disagree. In fact, there there are people who have written me and says, you know, Drucker kind of disagrees with you. And I, then I say, well, then I'm wrong, but I don't really mean it. Um, <laughs> it is amazing to me how many people want the brilliant technologist who's a colossal pain in the rear. I don't want him. I'm sorry, I don't. You and I have told the story before about a good friend who customers hated because he was so smart. And then snap, he got it. And now everybody wanted him on a project. I want that guy who's brilliant and who customers and team members love. Look, maybe it sounds very pedestrian. It is pedestrian. Being on time to meetings, being respectful when disagreeing with others, keeping discussions that you're having about the work and not about the people, being open with concerns in the right forums as opposed to carping privately with your team members communicating openly and repeatedly, not minding to have to repeat something to make sure everybody knows, as opposed to bitching that I can't believe I have to say this again. These are all very powerful traits and behaviors to look for when you're choosing your team. There are some managers who say, I don't want nice, I want I want good. So, well, I would argue that good includes nice. Um, yeah. And again, we'll talk more in the future about this. Well, you remember uh, when you work, you remember Hassan, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Hassan's projects were very, very successful. I can't actually, I can't remember him ever missing one. And you and I both disagree with the idea of self-managed teams. We don't agree with that concept. Right. Having said that, you know, Hassan had a very interesting um, principle that I had never, I had never used before. And he used it quite effectively. And it goes around, it goes to this point of work, choosing those who work well with others. And on his team, one, he, he, he insisted on this one particular project that he moves, he moved everybody into the same room. So he had a large, we took a conference room yeah. and turned it into war a, room kind of a war room, sure. yeah. which worked wonderfully. But the other thing was his team, the team of folk, that team, each individual had the right to veto somebody else on that team. If there was an individual on Whoa. the team that wasn't getting along with folks, any member of that team could simply say, I don't want this person on the team. Yeah. And so everybody on the team, anytime somebody, you know, and, the, and over the course of this project, the team grew pretty substantially. Every member of the team interviewed the new folks and they had it. veto power. I'll tell you what, that team was incredible. Everybody yeah. worked well together. And when you see a team like that work and, and, and all the gears are perfectly in sync and, oh, it really is one of those moments where, there are times when management is art, and yes. that was one of them. Yeah. Frankly, very few of us are as good as Hassan, <laughs> and very few of us are good enough to manage a team of stars. Or put that a little bit differently, very few of us are good enough to manage a team of arrogant, self-centered, disrespectful, dismissive, petulant people that don't get their way and then whine about it. Right. Well, I tell you, that team was full of stars. Yeah, exactly. Right. But they weren't self-centered, arrogant, disrespectful, yeah. <laughs> dismissive of people. <laughs> yeah. Be careful, folks, to choose not just technical skill. Look for those people skills. It really is all about people. Yeah, we got to write that down. We got to write that down. That's we got to make that important somehow. That's good. That's kind of good. Okay. So, so the second part of Horseman's Law does what? 
we've said this earlier, right? Tasks are why projects exist. Right. Their aggregation, the aggregation of those tasks, task is in effect the project. That's what the project is. Right. Tasks are really where highly effective project managers focus. When successful project managers are interviewed, you hear an awful lot of high level stuff about vision and the right idea, but there's a problem there. First, <laughs> they're answering the questions of the interviewer who probably doesn't know a flippant thing about how projects get done. Exactly. Right. And secondly, they know that that's the cool stuff, the vision, the leadership, the foresight stuff. Right. Now, we're not saying that those things don't help. They, they are. They're important, too. Right. But all the vision in the world won't overcome undead tasks. Highly effective PMs know. They know who is doing what and how it's going. And then they manage the relationship with the team members to ensure that the tasks have the highest possible chance of success, which is to say being done by the deadline. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. Success is actually being done by the deadline. Yeah. Yeah, getting tasks done is what makes projects successful. And I think we've lost that, right? Task accomplishment is far too little celebrated, and the failure to get tasks done is far too forgiven. Why are we surprised when all of our projects miss their delivery dates when we have let individual tasks slide past their due date? Mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah, mind-boggling, yeah. Even if we have good reasons for every single task deadline miss, because it just seems like we're always mortgaging the future, right? Even if we have good reasons for every single miss, if we allow them, and then we don't add new energy and productivity to overcome the delay we've created, why are we so surprised when we miss the delivery date? Why is there such angst about it? It's like delaying getting pregnant and then complaining about missing your original due date. I remember taking over a particular organization and part of the culture was a missed deliverable. So let's say somebody's, something was due January 15th and it didn't get done on January 15th. It's late. And then it gets done, let's say January 25th. All of a sudden the project went green. How can that possibly be? It was due, due January 15th. <laughs> now it's January 25th. There are other tasks dependent on that. By yeah. definition, the project is behind. Right? Yeah. So one simple change is, no, you're not. The project isn't green until you make the next scheduled date on time. Oh, I love that. Of course, that's a future cast. We've already talked about that. Is that a future cast? And people don't realize that. Yeah. And, and that, I only bring that up because that's just an example of the focus on deadlines. You miss a deadline, you're not green. Yeah. Sorry. And this is, I mean, if you listen to this, um, you and I have talked about this before. And every time I say it, we chuckle because it sounds so... It's like third grade stuff. And yet it's fundamentally an important lesson, which is if we get every task done on time, we have a much higher likelihood of being complete on time than if we allow tasks to be late. It's that simple. You can manage a project at the atomic level, at the task level, rather than trying to manage it at the galactic level. Look, effective project managers focus on the people and on the tasks, and they reward with feedback and praise meeting deadlines and they give adjusting feedback, and by the way, new deadlines when dates are missed. Do what you do when you're just a regular manager, not thinking about any particular project, assuming you know uh, um, the management trinity. Think about your team members and what they're working on. Make it easier for them to do the work you want so that they'll do it by when you want it done. And we'll, we'll talk more about the details of that in a minute. Look, if you ever wanted to know how little attention tasks and execution get when talk turns to project management 
overall, I have a little tidbit for you. The shortest entry by far on the Wikipedia page on project management is on execution. Hmm. Oh God, it just it just mind boggling, right? Let's actually get the work done rather than talk about getting the work done. Interesting. Okay, so our next point on tasks, talking about tasks, they need to be doable. Now that, that probably not the best title for this. Point, yeah, sorry about that. But what we're trying to do is make clear what we mean by task. A task is something that one person can be held accountable for and can reasonably be expected to have sufficient knowledge or skills to accomplish it by the deadline. Further, doable means measurable, which is to say it's not hard to tell whether it's done to standard or not. Yeah, and the mistake that people make, right, is that they talk about the task as being the work rather than about the doneness of the work. Right. I take it even further, which is every task has to have a deliverable. Right. There has yes. to be some visual representation. Now, look at the, 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 the visual representation. It, it can be a, an email saying I've done X or it can be a project review or it can be a code review or it can be whatever. Um, but there has to be something coming out of that. Like having a code review is not enough unless there's right. some representation of that thing having taken place. Show me the deliverable. Then we can discuss whether or not the task has been done or not. If there's no deliverable, there's no task. And of course, deliverables are measurable. So that's that, yes. that's kind of where I, how I yeah, get there. If it's delivered to me, then I know that I can measure it. Yes, it was delivered to me. So therefore, the task must be done. So an example would be if there's supposed to be a code review. Right. The fact that the code review happened is not a deliverable. The deliverable will be show me the meeting minutes from the code review. Exactly. In other words, the meeting minutes become the deliverable, the proof of it being done rather than the actual doing of it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I, I didn't I, I think I may have implied earlier and I didn't mean to, which is, yeah, send me a note that said the code review took place. That yeah. would be sufficient as a deliverable. That uh, I want to clarify. That yeah, would not be not a deliverable. So much. Yeah. Yeah. If you for instance, here here's an example. It's probably over my head technically. Build a customer friendly interface for the search page is not a doable task because it's not a measurable task, because one can't measure customer-friendly. On the other hand, build a search page interface that scores higher than 3.5 on our internal customer response scorecard. And then, of course, to your point, put in place, what do you have to show me? What do I have to look at in order to prove that that's done? That task is measurable and therefore, at least in part, doable. Again, we've, we've eliminated deadlines here just to make it easier, because you can, in fact, measure... 3.5 on an internal customer response scorecard, even if you have to make up the internal customer response scorecard in order to ensure that this is done. Exactly. Now, it's not enough simply to do the task. And this was a lesson I learned in a hard way very early in my career. Make reporting completion part of the task itself, right? It's, it's not a matter <laughs> just to do the work. You got to report on the work. Yeah. I think um, this is another one of those hate mail lines in this cast, um, we've said it before, unrelated to projects, frankly. So we totally stand honestly by our belief system here. But the person that does the work is the most effective and efficient person to report on the status of the work. And we talk about status. We mean the timeliness of it, the quality of it, and the resource usage on that particular task on overall. Having a manager, project manager or not, Spending time tracking down the status of something is inherently wasteful. 
If your organization pays you more than someone else, you doing something that they can do is, by definition, wasteful. Because the five minutes you spend doing it cost your company more than if someone who makes less than you spent their time doing it. In fact, you know, thanks to the, the comparative advantage of trade analogy, even though you can rake leaves in your yard faster than the neighbor kid, it still makes more sense for the neighbor kid to rake the leaves in your yard because you can do software development and he or she can't. There's an opportunity cost associated with you tracking down work. It's not just the time, although that's pretty important. But if you think I can do it in five minutes where it's going to take her 15 minutes, that's still not a good reason for you to do it unless you get paid more than triple what she does because you spend those five minutes tracking down work, which adds very little value to the organization as it, because she probably already knows what the status is. But it's also because you can't spend that five minutes doing your work, which is to say talking to somebody else about their status, most likely. So if you're not going to be the one to do it, who else would do it? But the person who did the work, right? It makes no, what are you going to go find some disinterested third party? That'd be a mess. And you know what? People are going to complain about this. The fact that their work is not done until they've reported on it, right? The work is not done. The task is not complete until you've reported that it's complete. Let me just be clear. I'm telling you now, people are going to complain. Boo-hoo. Sad faces all around. If your goal in life is avoiding complaints, you're going to be a very bad project manager. You're going to be very lonely. And you're going to be very ineffective. Break some eggs, for heaven's sake, and tell people this is the way it's going to be. Tell your team that a task is not complete relative to the project when the work is done. It's not. The work being done is not a completed task. Rather, when the work has been done and has been reported on as per whatever reporting system you've decided and promulgated across the organization... And look, don't spend a lot of time making the reporting process easy. They're going to complain no matter what. Frankly, we would, just because that's what people do when it comes to work, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I think that that's it on tasks, right? That's it on tasks. Now my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> I, I and many executive friends of mine, we love deadlines, right? So yes, the part we're talking we about do. here is buy when, right? Yeah. Well, that's it for part three. We'll finish up with part four next week. In the meantime, before we go, though, one quick comment. With over 200 Manager Tools podcasts so far and our continuing conversation on many of the topics you find here, we found that new listeners sometimes feel like they're joining a conversation kind of like halfway through the conversation. So for that reason, we created the Manager Tools Basics, a special collection of basics of Manager Tools specifically for the new listener. You'll find a link to it on the Manager Tools website, www.managertools.com, right off the podcast menu on the menu bar. In addition, there's an RSS feed with just those casts, so you can have easy reference to those casts in iTunes, Zune, or your podcatcher of choice anytime you want. If you're new to Manager Tools, I hope you check it out. All right, folks, see you next week. So long. <laughs>